Hello, and welcome back to Nursing Matters, the podcast from the Professional Nursing Committee of the RCN. My name is Rachel Hollis, and I'm the chair of the Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse by background. My co-host today is another of our PNC members, Professor Julie Green. Julie's professor in district nursing at Keele University, and in fact, today starts a new job as head of school of nursing and midwifery at Keele. So, Julie, welcome. Thank you, Rachel. It's, it's lovely to be here with you. Great to have you here. So, first day in your new job today, what are you looking forward to in this new role? Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully inspiring our current students and inspiring people to come and do their, their undergraduate training, but also our established staff to come back and advance their skills and education. So getting out there, talking to staff and supporting people with their professional development. We're really excited by the feedback from our first episode of Nursing Matters. Listeners sent some ideas and thoughts for future editions, which we're following up on. So please do keep them coming in. You can tweet us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of the global pandemic on student nurses and on the ways it's changed nurse training and education. We're also going to reflect on the huge rise in applications to study nursing, why that is and how it can be managed. And we've got two brilliant guests to talk about this. So first of all, Heather Massey, Chair of RCN Students. Hello, Heather. Hello. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here today. It really is. Just tell us where you're working at the moment, Heather. Uh, at the moment, I'm on an acute medical unit. I am an adult trained nurse, but I am, I'm very soon going to be heading into the prison service to be a, um, to work in offender health. So you're Chair of RCN Students. What do you really want to achieve in, in that role in the next year? I would like to really amplify the student voice. The RCN has one of the loudest student union voices going. It really does. And it's really a case of I really want to help drive that and steer it into something productive for our students and for our student members, especially after last year in the way that that our students are continuing to just step up to the mark. Completing the panel, we've got um, Dr Sarah Burden, who is chair of the RCN's Education Forum. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Rachel. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now it's great to have you here, fellow Yorkshire person. <laughs> well, honorary Yorkshire person. I'm always called to come in by patients because mm. I'm not from Yorkshire. So I am reminded regularly. <laughs> <laughs> but you are working at Leeds Beckett University. I am. And uh, so a close neighbour to the Leeds General Infirmary. So what yes. do you hear from clinical colleagues about the in- of the pandemic there? Yeah, no, we have very close links with, uh, in particular, Leeds Teaching Hospitals Trust, uh, and we've done a lot of support with them over the past year because our, our site is literally next door to them. We offered our facilities right at the beginning to support training for additional support workers, porters and that. So we uh, had a lot of additional staff training in. We loaned equipment. We've recently been supporting their work with setting up the mass vaccination centre at Ellen Road in Leeds and have trained over 700 volunteer vaccinators to support them with that delivery. Uh, So it's been a lot of change, uh, hard work. First peak, March, April, was really challenging for staff, particularly in critical care areas. And not just for staff that are used to working there, but for staff redeployment. January also was a very, very difficult month for the Trust. 
But also what we're hearing is lots of pockets of, of good things. People have changed things that they've tried to change for a long time and have been given the flexibility and opportunity to do that. So perhaps not all doom and gloom. There's been some real advantages, you know, moving with technology, team working, working with practitioners that perhaps they've not worked with before. And lots of staff have felt supported. So we're going to be talking about a huge increase in interest in nursing as a career over the past year, a positive reflection on work that we do. But the higher education institutions have the resources they need to cope with these new recruits. It's certainly a challenge. Like all institutions, we've had a significant increase in our numbers. And I certainly spent all day yesterday interviewing prospective candidates uh, of range. It needs to be planned for and managed. So good working with uh, structures, you know, like Health Education England or uh, NESS in Scotland uh, is really important so that we can work together, build partnerships and plan for capacity, for funding, for adequate support of students. But actually, there are opportunities. Uh, we've learned of different ways of perhaps delivering programmes that would support increases uh, for numbers uh, as well. Perhaps some of the changes that we're allowed to make in terms of placements, what, what counts as placements, who can supervise, the use of simulation. But perhaps just one plea is not to forget that there are a diverse range of routes into nursing now. So it's not just the undergraduate full-time programme. We've got significant pressures from our placement partners to train up, if you like, their um, registered nursing associates so that they can top up for their um, degrees now. Uh, and uh, that's putting pressure then onto placements and um, capacity for student learning. So let's look more closely at that potential surge of, in recruitment into the profession. There's been a massive increase in applications for nursing courses, up over a, a third, apparently, to over 60,000 people. And increases in every age group, with a record 16,500 school leavers applying and over 10,000 mature students. So up to 39% mature students also wanting to join the profession. But I think it's really important to remember that at the same time, we've got a new survey which finds that over a quarter of current NHS workers are considering quitting the service over pay, understaffing and exhaustion from the, the pandemic. So how do we sort of manage student nurses and placements to take account of this influx of people? But just as importantly, how do we keep skilled and experienced nurses within the profession? How do we patch up that leaky bucket to, to keep those valuable nurses there? Heather, what what do you think is really driving that rise in applications? I think it will be a lot to do with the pandemic as there's been a lot of a, uh, attention and focus within the NHS and all the other services that are being provided at the moment, especially now it's continuing with the vaccine rollout. But at the same time as well, it's just a case of there are, there are a lot of nurses out there who have had children and I've seen it I've seen it where I've worked with one and then I've worked with their son or their daughter and it continues that way and I think the more I engage with nursing communities especially on social media 
that it seems that more are cropping up closer to me that I didn't have any idea of. And I think that we're all dotted about so well and we can approach so many people. And I think it that idea that we are among people, really. We're not this superhero, as we've been termed, but we're approachable and we really are your day-to-day people. And I think that that makes people think, actually, you know what, why why wouldn't I want to do this? Because it's we all talk about how rewarding it is and we all talk about how much we love what we do. And that's what people want to do, especially when they're 18, 19, they want to do something they're going to love for the rest of their lives. What was it that brought you into nursing? So I was actually studying criminological and forensic psychology way back in 2012 and I started part-time work at a care agency and I would go around to people's houses and that really I loved it so so much I stopped my course went full-time with that went into the NHS and then it just as a healthcare assistant and then it just progressed from there and it's been absolutely brilliant and I I really found my niche and I was quite lucky to find it the way I did and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I just, I love it. It really, it keeps me going. It keeps me mentally going. And it's just, I love talking to people. So it's its a win-win for me, isn't it? And it really is. See by your face and listening to you how much you you really love it, which is, um, which is great to see. Lovely. Um, Heather, could I ask you, what's been the experience of student nurses during the pandemic? Um, a lot of feedback that I've been hearing really comes from the fact that our nursing staff that are out there that are supposed to be teaching these students while they're out there are exhausted. They are exhausted and we try and be mindful of everything and we try and keep it all going. We just have to try and make the best of it. But when you're on a placement area for 10 to 12 weeks where you don't feel that you're supported or you don't feel that your learning is paramount and you're paying to be there in your tuition out of your fees it just feels a bit demoralizing and a bit they can't be bothered with me why am I doing this again and it it can become quite hard work just to keep motivated just to the end of a placement because it's it is a longer time than it than it sounds so do you think there's been a difference between those who had paid placements and those who haven't Previously unpaid placements before the pandemic were completely different. And now I have been receiving messages of issues where people, regardless of paid or unpaid recently, have basically, they're an extra pair of hands, which is what we're there, you know, we're there to help, but they're not, be, they are not being given any learning opportunities whatsoever. And it does worry me a lot because it's such valuable time that you never get back. You never get to go, once you've got your pin, you never get to go back to that. I'm just a student and I really don't know what I'm doing here. And you don't get to consolidate it all. Do you think there are consequences for the future if we've been treating students as if they're another pair of hands? I do. I really do. Because nursing degrees already have a much higher than average attrition rate. On average, most degree level courses have around a 10 to 13% attrition rate for nursing that nearly triples and it's great that we've got so many applicants coming in but there's no guarantee that a they'll achieve the place b they will stay 
after the first placement, especially if they are a, a college leaver who hasn't done anything like this before, because that first placement can be such a massive shock to the system. And it's understandable. It really is understandable. And I don't think we should be banking on numbers that we don't have. And there are so many challenges through university life that students just get pounded and battered and demoralised. And then they think, why should I bother? And then, especially with pay at the moment and the media attention, and it's giving it a bit of a skew, it might make them think, well, what am I doing this for? Why am I going for three years, working working long days just for free to support a system that I'm not learning in to then come out with this, to come out not being able to afford all my bills every month? And I think we'll see another, we'll continue to see a decline in nurses if we're not careful and if we don't protect our students because they need to know how important they are to the future of nursing. Sarah, I guess, you know, there are two perspectives from that. So we've heard from Heather sort of that feeling Mm -hmm. of being just another pair of hands. And we know that student nurses are supposed to be supernumerary. From your experience as an educator, do you think the NHS has always observed that distinction around supernumerary status? Um, It's always been an area that, and I mean, there's lots of literature on it as well, but it's an area that really causes a lot of tensions Certainly over the last year, we've seen a real challenges, partly as uh, Heather was identifying in terms of whether it was a paid placement or an unpaid placement, but equally with changes in uh, staffing, you know, as people were redeployed and as staff have been off sick, so significant challenges in terms of numbers of staff, that has been really difficult. I think we've got to Sometimes remember what we mean by supernumerary. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the NMC is clear that they're not counted in numbers. And certainly that's something that as a university, we all monitor that very, very carefully. But perhaps we've got to look, because yes, I sometimes hear students coming back and saying, I've just worked as a healthcare assistant. And so you've got to unpick what does that mean? How are you supported in that role? How can we help practitioners? What can we do as education programmes to support students at the same time? So how do we design our programmes so that students still feel supported in that messiness of practice, if you like? So there is something for us to ensure that students are supported in learning, particularly when we know that practice settings are challenged. During the pandemic, the NMC brought in some temporary rules which allowed simulated clinical experience to count as part of clinical hours as a different way of teaching. What does that mean for academic staff like you? Yeah, uh, it's actually my uh, background. I've been director of practice in the past. And in fact, our simulation within our programmes, in principle, we'd really welcome it because it offers learning opportunities that we can manage. It takes pressure off uh, stressed practice settings. It can complement learning, um, but it can also supplement. So where students perhaps have uh, not had a learning opportunity that they needed or wanted, we can put in those learning opportunities within managed settings. So I run one for end-of-life care, and it's not about practices such as what 
medicines you give or you know how you know that very procedural it's very much about so we have an actor in playing a relative with somebody you know next to somebody who's uh, in their final hours of life and how do you communicate how do you respond to the questions and the emotions in that setting and what decision making uh, do you make because students often see us as as practitioners being very busy moving through delivering care and don't actually see the clinical decision making and how we're applying knowledge Julie, I know that you've been using simulation in quite innovative ways as as well. Don't you have a simulation house? We're in the process of developing one. And I think that the thing about placements is quality experiences on placement. And something like a health house, and I know many universities are developing similar environments, you could create a challenging situation in every room in that house and students could go through those experiences. So Whereas you may be on placement for a number of weeks before you encounter those challenging experiences, we can actually alter. Each room could be a different challenge. So it doesn't replace practice, but I think it does allow us to really focus learning on events that we we can put on. So we're very excited about developing that resource and using it for the throughput of students to then reflect on that when they actually go out into clinical practice. I think we can refine learning through simulation that can then be embedded through a practice experience. It's never fully going to replace it, but I think, you know, I think if we manage it well, and I think it's a great opportunity for interprofessional learning where you can actually, you know, have those situations where you're working with an interprofessional team about how you would manage that. Because the whole issue of the EU exit transition has ended. We know that the UK is no longer required to follow EU law on the requirements for education and increased use of simulation is something that I know some people are thinking about. And we've heard just this week that the NMC have commissioned some independent research into a possible review of the whole issue of UK programme standards and how closely they follow those EU ones. And that's looking at things like methods of learning assessment, use of simulation, but also the number and ratio of theory and practice hours and and lengths of programmes. And Julie, do you think there's a, a case for change provided by this review? Yeah, I do. And I'm really hopeful of a a positive outcome in terms of those hour requirements. So the EU directive is a total of 4,600 hours, 2,300 of which are completed in theory, 2,300 in clinical placement with the proviso of up to 300 hours of simulation. And that review is going out and has been circulated in the last week to have our say. I would see that as our only way to being able to increase our student numbers. So for HEIs, the limiting factor is accessibility to placements. I think if we look at situations in other countries, so UK trained nurses are admired around the world and we are known to have a very robust training. But if we look across at our colleagues in Australia, they have 800 hours of clinical practice and in America, a thousand hours. And I'm not saying that we should have such radical change, but I think a review of those hours, and if it was something around 1800 hours with, you know, an increased allowance for simulation that's done and done well, I think that would 
open our ability to meet Boris Johnson's target of 50,000 more nurses into practice, which we need. We need those troops to come along and help us deliver good quality patient care, because when all said and done, all of our discussion, education, students, is about patient care. So let's um, look at where we go from here with this potential large new intake of nurses, although we've heard some of the challenges of that. And I guess that that's uh, it's the student voice that's really behind the um, RCN's current campaign being led by RCN students on Fund Our Future. Heather, would you tell us a bit about that campaign and, and what we're calling for? Yeah, so it is a bit of a multifaceted campaign. Because of the differences in funding between England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, Northern Ireland still have a bursary system. Wales, I think they have a a slightly different system where they will cover your tuition fees, I want to say, if you then go to work in NHS Wales for at least two years post-qualifying. And in Scotland, they get, I think it's £10,000 bursary type system. That's how it's been explained to me. Whereas in England, we rely solely on the student loans company. And what we really want is parity for all our students. It shouldn't matter where in the UK that you study. You should be able to be supported, to financially manage, and you shouldn't ever be disadvantaged by that. From personal experience, in the student finance system in England, it doesn't work brilliantly. It's better than nothing, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't work brilliantly because in my first year, I didn't receive any funding. So I started in September and I didn't get anything until the 27th of December. So I had to struggle through that first term, choosing between do I eat today or do I have to put this money in my car to attend my lectures, to attend this session, to attend this and that. It shouldn't have been like that, but it Unfortunately, that is the reality for some students. You know, we get through it, but we shouldn't be having to get through it. Not only that, though, fund our future within itself. We want, we don't want nurses to have to pay tuition fees. We really don't. Back when I was doing first studying, first time around, so this 2011 I started, it was the last year that tuition fees were three, are in the £3,000 mark a year. And then that tripled the year after and it, it's slowly but surely going to continue to increase. It really does have this effect of, oh my goodness, I've got £70,000 of debt, especially if you take out all of the support in the tuition fee loans and then the maintenance loans. It sits on you, even though technically it's not framed as a debt in the same way, but it still sits on you. And then you see it every month coming out of your pay slip, and then you're thinking where's that three years gone that I'm paying this much money for? It isn't a perfect system and I would like to be able to say that we want to remove tuition fees altogether for for student nurses. But I do know that, well, we need to pay our our academics somehow for their time and their energy and the effort that they really do put in and to their passions. They They can't live on passion alone. We need to support them and that in turn for them to support us. But there's got to be a way that we can steer it forward and that's where Fund Our Future comes in. It's making our students' voices heard, but also our academics. Sarah, you chair the RCN's Education Forum. Sort of 
speaking from the forum, what, what for you is the biggest lesson that you think that we need, that the pandemic has taught us about education and, and training in nursing? I think if we think sort of broadly about it, uh, it's really shown uh, what nursing is and that nursing is knowledge intensive, it's safety critical and that education across all roles is really important if nurses are able to, you know, for nurses to deliver the care that the public expect from us. And we've seen that particularly when other professional groups have stepped in, particularly in critical care, uh, to support some of the staffing challenges that have existed and have identified, you know, the the knowledge and skills base, perhaps articulated sometimes what we've not always been very good at in terms of how this is a, a professional, really highly trained, highly skilled package of care. And so we've really started to see the education needs to get the workforce that, that, that we need. The other thing is that actually a really key bit of education in nursing is how we learn to learn, because as a profession, we will need to continue to learn across our whole working career, that just, you know, trying to fill people with knowledge is actually not what it's about. We're trying to produce educated practitioners who will continue to be able to be flexible and adapt uh, and continue to learn across their career. And, you know, just talking before we started today, I've learned loads recently just getting involved with uh, the vaccination programme. It's not my professional background. And starting to think about what is my practice, what underpins my practice, what makes it safe, what's my decision making. That's what we do as nurses. Heather, what do you think is the biggest lesson we should learn for education and training from the experience of the pandemic? It needs to be taken into consideration that our students are clearly committed. They will do what they can, when they can, when asked to do so. It's not just about educating in in a narrow mind. It is about teaching that nursing is a lifelong learning path. It really is. And we always want to know more. Why does that do that? And it, it flips us off and we have to we have to know. And I think that that is something that is fairly unique to nursing and medicine and the associated career paths. And I think some universities, definitely not all, definitely not all. Some may try and baby the students a bit, you know, try and go back to school type type teaching. You will sit, you will listen, you will do this and done. But there are some that are absolutely incredible. They they plant that seed in their minds of their students and say, what would you do with this? They encourage that growth of independent thought. And I think that that, is the, that was the best way to learn, especially for me. Well, this is, this is what the evidence says. So, that is, you know, and how to justify decisions is vital. But it is that need for flexibility and that need for some time maybe to process afterwards because from my experience my the university I was at wasn't exactly the most sympathetic when you're dealing with bereavement on top of working through a pandemic it's it's understanding that life can change quite drastically is there any availability for a bit more flexibility in the program approaches and I think that that's something that we could we can potentially look at 
Thanks, Heather. And Julie gets the last word on this particular topic in what have we learnt for education and training from the pandemic? I mean, I think I remember reflecting right at the start of the first wave, so end of March last year, and walking and, and the silence, nobody around but the only people we knew were around were those people going into clinical practice in a very, you know, a fearful time that we didn't really know what the risks were. And I think we really learned that healthcare professionals rock up and do the job despite personal challenges and fears. I think the biggest learning really is our need to support each other's health and well-being, specifically mental health and working as teams and being understanding. Many of us have suffered bereavements and personal loss during this process and we've still gone to work, we've still delivered and I think it is that mental health support for each other and I think ultimately to always think, think first, be kind. And I think that's what my learning to take forward in education is to hear people's stories and be kind in terms of how we manage things. So I think we can be cautiously optimistic about new recruits to nursing, but we went into the pandemic with a significant shortfall of nurses and we should never forget that. And I think what's really concerning at at the moment is how morale is among those existing professionals before we even think about the, the missing ones. A recent poll for the Institute for Public Policy Research cites, you know, exhaustion over COVID, understaffing, and of course, pay is among the reasons that people are thinking of leaving the profession. And I wonder, Sarah, how much you think that that is down to pay or what are the other what are the other factors there's certainly we can't hide uh, from the fact that pay is an issue and it's not just pay at one point in time I think because we do not have a a good career uh, progression framework particularly to keep people within clinical practice and you know um, we have large numbers of nurses at band five and six through agenda for change with little opportunity for progression so it's not just pay at one point in somebody's career but opportunities to enhance that pay is a significant issue. It's a whole career framework that rewards people for developing expertise and knowledge and staying uh, delivering clinical care. That, that so there's it's a wider reform in terms of flexibility, particularly if people are joining uh, nursing perhaps as a second career and have already got commitments. They want to be able to self roster have flexibility over part-time working. Perhaps for uh, older nurses, some of the figures that have just come out in terms of what would older nurses want to continue, perhaps with some part-time working, some flexibility over pension arrangements, and still commitment to their development. You know, we talked about nursing being about lifelong learning throughout your career, And just because you've been doing a job for a long time, fulfilling a role, how is that practice being enhanced as complexity of needs changes, services are are developing and changing as well? So pay is really important. 
career frameworks, definitely important as well. And enhancing people's um, ability to get some balance between their work and, and their other commitments. Yeah, I think those are all really critical factors in how we retain people into the profession, isn't it? I mean, we, we're talking about yeah. increasing, but it, it's really that retention which is which is critical. So pays in there and the government's um, insulting, frankly, pay offer of of, um, 1%, uh, which came just a couple of weeks ago, caused huge huge anger among many of our members in the RCN. Um, Heather, what did student nurses think about that pay offer? They're quite rightly very, very angry about it in general, from my perspective on it, from what I've been hearing, because it's, it's our future at the end of the day as well we're going into a pathway that clearly the government doesn't appear to appreciate as it should because we're all it's drilled into us from day one this is a professional career it's hugely scientific and it marries up the qualities of science and of the human compassion and it's extremely complex and it doesn't seem to reflect that all everything we have to do just to get a pin never mind everything we then have to battle with day to day on the wards, in our clinics, wherever we nurse and whatever we do, it doesn't seem to reflect those complexities. And it's it's extremely frustrating. Like, why am I doing this if they're only if they're not gonna pay me appropriately for it? And our students see the staffing gaps and our students feel the effects of that because you can have some brilliant nurses on a, on an area. And then if all of a sudden the numbers dwindle because they've had to leave, you get brilliant nurses leaving so who might be brilliant with students. But there are some that absolutely are amazing. Everybody that I, I had as mentors were great. And my assessors were great. But there are some that just shine that extra bit bright. And if we're not careful, we're going to drive them out. And we're going to lose them and we're going to lose that experience for our students as well I think critical to retain that experience and we talked a bit in our last episode actually about that inextricable link between Mm. their paid safe staffing and and retention the IPPR warned in its survey that although not all those people who say that they are seriously considering leaving will do so even a moderate exodus would be very damaging given what we've talked about in terms of the current vacancies and what they recommend is that the government needs to set out a a new deal for NHS staff, including decent pay rise, better benefits, more flexible working, as both Sarah and and Julie have talked about, and actually fewer administrative tasks. And I know, Heather, you talked Mm. earlier about being used as a a ward clerk, but and I think that (laughs) we all know that sometimes some of the tasks that we take on are are not Mm. using that knowledge intensive skills and skills that we have so apart from pay do we think that any of that is on the government's current agenda Sarah do you think those topics are there and are recognized I certainly think the case is being made I don't know how well that is being listened to and I think that's something that really needs to shape uh, the workforce plan There are commitments about how we get uh, new numbers of healthcare staff, not just nurses, but there are targets as well for GPs and doctors, for instance. 
um, therapeutic radiographers is another shortfall. So the targets are there, but just putting people into a profession who will not stay is not good in terms of quality of care because we lose all of that expertise, organisational intelligence. It's very costly uh, to do as well. So we need to keep lobbying to see a bigger agenda and for that to be part of a workforce plan. We must keep the staff we've got. In relation to staff burnout, what what's your experience been of those who uh, you're talking to during the pandemic? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I really feel for, for the nurses uh, in ICU at uh, the Royal Free um, and certainly their experiences of working uh, outside of the standard practice of one-to-one in intensive care and on ratios of one nurse to three or even one nurse to four patients. But from the colleagues that I've spoken to in ICU, that just feels scary. It's really, really stressful knowing how much can go wrong and that you are just managing and not being able to do the job that you want to do uh, to the standard that you want to do it has felt pretty impossible at times. And there have been really significant levels of mental distress and evident in people that you would not expect to see that in normally pretty robust individuals. You know, this has been really really difficult we're almost at the end of our podcast which means we've got a question from one of our listeners simon asked that um, we've talked about possible changes to nurse training depart from some of the regulations in the eu but He um, makes the point that doing so could make UK registrants ineligible to practice in Europe. And so whether that review should be done in partnership with the EU rather than being done um, just from the UK. And Sarah, I wondered if you had any views on that. Yeah, no, it, it is an interesting issue. Currently under the Brexit deal, qualifications across all professions are protected and remain in alignment for the next two years, uh, is my understanding. So it's about what do we want the future to look like? Is it an issue that we have qualifications that allow us uh, to practice within the EU? Certainly, there have been few UK nurses moving through to the EU. Generally, the flow tends to be from the EU to here. But clearly, if our qualifications then look different it might mean that we will not have that flow into the UK. So we could lose out here. I think it would be helpful in any part of the review to actually link with both the, you know, sort of European nursing councils and the International Council of Nurses as well. Because actually we do have, you know, nursing is a global profession. We are recruiting, even as I speak, from uh, international uh, areas you know, most big trusts are recruiting abroad. Uh, the government have talked about funding recruitment for nurses from Hong Kong uh, as part of the uh, changing uh, arrangements for Hong Kong. So we do need to be mindful of any changes that we have, that we've got a, a profession that is at least equal, if not, you know, we've always been seen as a high standard to be achieved. We must not dilute that. We need evidence base to what that education needs to look like. It needs to be outcomes driven. 
that nursing looks like this, it can deliver that. This is the standard that nurses practice at within the UK. And that kind of principle-based approach, I think, would work quite well uh, across Europe and internationally. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah. So for our listeners, remember that you can tweet us your questions at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening to this edition. We really hope that you enjoyed it and we'll be back soon. So please do follow us on your favourite podcast app. Thanks very much to our panel, to Professor Julie Green. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Heather Massey. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Heather. And Sarah Burden. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sarah. You've been brilliant. So thanks to our listeners as well. Thanks for joining us. If you're enjoying Nursing Matters, why not also subscribe to Past Caring, which is a new podcast from the RCN Library and Archive team, exploring with nurses, historians and artists, actually, how the history of nursing helps us understand how we think about health and care today. And each episode takes a theme from an RCN exhibition. So episode one, exploring pandemics, past and present, very topical, with episode two, delving into the long history of women's health. You can listen and subscribe to both these podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much.